Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The debt ceiling debate has absorbed many in Washington over the past few weeks, as well as those whose business prospects are directly tied to federal spending. Now that a deal is done, how are they feeling about it? I spoke with federal contracting expert Larry Allen to find out. I think the good news is now that we have a debt ceiling agreement that the rest of the fiscal year for FY23 should be pretty strong. Congress has appropriated a lot of money, uh, perhaps a record number for acquisitions for this year. We'll have to wait and see what happens when the year ends. But overall, it should be a strong last quarter plus for government contractors. Agencies now have a clear path from here to the end of the year. There shouldn't be any more hiccups. Things may have slowed down a little bit while people dealt with what they thought might be a shutdown due to the debt ceiling. But now that that's over, I think we'll have the traditionally strong fourth quarter that we've had, particularly strong, consistent with the last two years. Which agencies are going to see less dollars, though? I mean, obviously, the GOP members got some of what they wanted, which means cuts to federal agencies. What are you hearing from your clients on that front? So I think the big thing we're going to see on that is civilian agencies going to be, uh, in some cases, they will have uh, less money to spend. Not so much the Department of Defense, at least not right now. But if you're looking at places that have unobligated COVID money, whether it's CMS or Department of Education that maybe was giving grants to state and local governments that have not obligated that money yet, those are areas where we're going to see money clawed back. So If you've got money that's been sitting in an account unused for a couple of years, maybe it was COVID money, maybe it was infrastructure money, that money, uh, if it's uh, not obligated, it's very vulnerable. That's the type of thing you could expect to see taken away. But in terms of defense expenditures and anything related to national security, that's going to remain there, remain strong. Things that are associated with cybersecurity. Having said that, though, there's a difference between cybersecurity and other IT wish list items. The further away you get from criticality, the more likely it is that you might see funds diminished for allegedly non-critical, non-major IT projects. And part of the deal also, they didn't want to call it this, but it seems as if we're returning to cross-the-board cuts, uh, a.k.a. sequestration. (laughs) Are you worried about any of that language going back into spending deals? Well, now we do have the S-word back in the federal vernacular for sequestration. And basically what the budget agreement says is if Congress fails to pass all 12 appropriations bills for FY24 on time, on time being before midnight, September 30th, then there would be an automatic 1% across the board sequestration that would kick in. And nobody would want to see that. That would also affect the Department of Defense. I will say there's a lot of time between now and then for Congress to either pass the bills, which is unlikely given their previous track record of not getting appropriations bills done on time, but more likely 
there's more of an opportunity to maybe backtrack on the sequestration automatic cut. We've already heard some members in the Senate talk about carving out the Department of Defense from those automatic sequestrations. So there's a lot of time left before that would type of before that type of cut would actually take place. But it certainly is a specter, uh, and it's a marker, I think, as much as anything, to try to get appropriations done in a timely manner. And really, that would just benefit everybody. It benefits federal agencies. It benefits taxpayers because it puts in some surety to the budget process. And of course, it, it benefits contractors as well. Yeah, and most of them obviously look quarter to quarter, but uh, is there worry about five years down the road having to do this whole thing again? Oh, I think you definitely have to be concerned about coming up with another debt ceiling increase when we get to that point sometime after the next presidential election right now is the amount of time we think we've bought ourselves. Uh, We'll see if that comes to fruition. But I definitely think in terms of overall acquisition dollars, we've been riding a high for the last several years in the government market. Contractors and their government counterparts would do well to understand that we're not going to continually see year over year increases in discretionary spending, whether it's attributable to a debt ceiling increase, an appropriation, a sequestration, what have you. Look, I've been in this market for a long time. I've seen government acquisition dollars go up, but I've also seen them go down. We're kind of due right now for a downturn. So in the out years, really starting as soon as FY24, I would urge some caution in expecting things to continue as they have. There may be some belt tightening and some increased competitiveness. Got it. As far as the frequently asked questions that contractors have for their agency customers, one of the major ones, obviously, is the General Services Administration. You all recently did an analysis on what those FAQ Interact sites are, uh, how, how well they're being kept up. Uh, what did you all find? The basic idea behind the GSA Interact sites, I think, is a good one, and that is to serve as a centralized way for different groups of contractors to stay in communication with specific programs at GSA. You have an Interact site for almost every federal acquisition service contract method, whether it's the schedules program, whether it's Alliant, whether it's what a Polaris or Oasis. And yet what I've found is if you're not on the schedules program Interact site, then your site isn't being updated very often. Uh, the GSA Schedules Interact site is updated about every 10 to 14 days, whereas Polaris has not been updated in well over a month, six or seven weeks. It's been a little bit over a month now for Oasis Plus. Both of these are procurements that are ongoing right now. Oasis Plus is just about to come out with a final RFP. And yet both of those programs, Polaris and Oasis Plus, were dealt either directly or indirectly setbacks in the Court of Federal Claims about six or seven weeks ago. GSA needs to communicate effectively, clearly, and quickly what they're going to do with those two programs and when that's going to happen. 
They might not have all of the answers now, but you've got an interact program to communicate with industry on what you can say, and there ought to be some capability to update it. Even a program like Alliant 3, where GSA has already said, don't expect an RFP out until FY24, I think an update for that program is worthwhile because it's going to have some of the pricing issues and some of the mentor-protege issues that Oasis Plus and Polaris have. So all three of those sites, I think, need to be updated. That's Larry Allen from Allen Federal Business Partners. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com and wherever you get your podcasts when you subscribe to The Federal Drive. 57 past the hour, this is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Recently, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, released a technical assistance document which laid out certain confines employers will need to operate within if they're using artificial intelligence during the hiring process. There have already been a few cases where unintended discrimination affected some companies' hiring initiatives. To hear about them and learn more about the document itself, I spoke with Carol Miaskoff. She's legal counsel for the EEOC. EEOC has had a focus and an initiative on artificial intelligence and the overlap with civil rights and EEO law for a while now. We held a public meeting on the implications for employment in January 2023. And overall, big picture, what we've been hearing from employers and from vendors of these AI systems as used in employment is that they really want some guidance, want some guardrails, want some input in terms of how the established EEO standards for discrimination in selection and other employee monitoring, et cetera, how that all will be applied to the AI technologies that are being used now. So it was in response to that general need that we certainly heard from stakeholders who were reaching out to us, employers and vendors, as well as the information that we gathered in our public hearing in January 2023 on this topic. And you can find that on our website under About EEOC with links to all the testimony that we decided that it would be really helpful to put out a short, straightforward technical assistance document, which is what this document is, that establishes that when you use AI technology, which has a lot of promise in a lot of ways, the um, established EEO standards for assessing whether or not it's discriminatory under Title VII will apply to these tools. So in a sense, the highest level point made by our piece is that when AI is used in a selection procedure uh, for employment, the established 
framework of the uniform guidelines on employee selection procedures to apply. And by by making that clear, it's sort of clear that a basic rubric of rules then apply to determine if there is a uh, certainly disparate impact that might be illegal in using these tools. Um, and I think the first big question that was, at, was being asked by stakeholders was, do the established standards under the uniform guidelines apply in this arena when AI is at play? And the answer to that, according to our piece, is yes. So that's the highest level. The sort of next level down in terms of detail is that the uniform guidelines have something that people colloquially call the four-fifths rule. And what that means is if people with a particular characteristic that's protected under the EEO laws are selected at a rate that's less than four-fifths of the majority group, then it's likely that there was a sort of disproportionately negative exclusionary effect. And that's important in a sense in terms of what it does and what it doesn't do. What it does is it is a rule of thumb for assessing impact. What it doesn't do is definitively in any way, shape, or form decide if if an impact is discriminatory or not. And that is really important because we had started to hear about folks saying, well, our tools are EEO compliant. We've passed the four-fifths rule. Really, there's unfortunately a lot more and a lot more complicated than that, because even if there is an impact, first of all, the four-fifths rule is a rule of thumb. You look at statistical significance, but more importantly than that, the issue is whether the tool that's having an impact is actually predictive of success on the job, and that's the job-related consistent with business necessity legal standard under Title VII. That's the key is whether it's predictive of success on the job. And there are just different steps in the analysis. If it does appear that there was an impact, statistically significant impact, then you go ahead and you look at whether it is predictive of success on the job. And that's the heart of the issue. And I would say there's indeed one more step is, was it predictive of success on the job? And did the employer actually reject an alternative that might be less discriminatory? So those are the kind of substantive considerations you look at, and that's really the bottom line point of this document. Got it. And so it's who was involved, I guess, is my next question. Is Was it um, obviously the legal angle came from your side of things, but did you also include the folks who could tell you what are the capabilities of these new hiring tools that utilize AI in their purpose? Well, we certainly, we did this in response to hearing from a lot of stakeholders, employers and vendors about questions of whether these standards even apply to the tools that use AI. So we were responding to certainly that concern. We were responding to what was heard at the public, um, the public hearing in January. And we were responding to what we were seeing in some of our own matters coming forward in terms of we have some matters, some charges that were settled with public conciliation. For example, um, I guess this spring, obviously a case DHI 
DHI operated a job search website for technology professionals called Dice.com, and they entered a conciliation agreement uh, with EEOC because they were using software that was excluding Americans. So it was national origin discrimination because they had some pretty straightforward algorithms that included searching for discriminatory keywords, such as they were looking affirmatively for H-1B or visa that appeared near the words only or must in job postings. And that's what they did. They selected for people which with H-1B visas and thereby excluded Americans. So this was one of our first uh, sort of public conciliations in this area. Got it. And, you know, getting bias out of AI and machine learning has been a larger issue overall. Hearing from stakeholders such as that company, have they said how tall of a task it is to actually make sure that these algorithms don't discriminate against anybody, you know, even if it's accidentally and, you know, obviously not on purpose? Right. Well, if you look at the conciliation statement, in this instance, what the settlement um, was somewhat straightforward because it was basically an algorithm and they agreed to sort of scrape the algorithm for these search tools that were like, you know, H1B, you know, within two words of only that kind of thing, you know, very basic kind of computer programming. And they agreed to sort of what like they called scrape their software for that to change it so it wouldn't select positively only for people with H-1Bs. And, you know, so that's a fairly straightforward solution. That said, I'm not going to pretend that this is simple, that this is easy. It's not. I think everyone, vendors, employers, the government, everyone is working to to think about how to approach this and how to most efficiently monitor it. And, you know, it will it will not be straightforward and simple or else there wouldn't, you know, there wouldn't be sort of the level of interest and questions that are happening now as we're all adjusting to AI and sophisticated algorithms. And there was a joint statement that our chair signed with other major agencies involved in this effort that sort of sets forth a sort of cross-government approach of really trying to understand these issues and work with stakeholders as we all work to see how we can maximize the positive aspects of this technology, which are no doubtedly there, while avoiding the negative downsides or the unintended consequences. We have a, a litigation that we filed Fairly recently, the against a group called iTutor, little i hyphen tutor, and it's a case that it, again involves sort of software algorithmic selection of applicants, and that's an instance where the software was just expressly programmed to I think exclude women women over like 55 and men over 60 just straight out straight away so that's in the early stages of litigation now Uh, so there's sort of no substantive result but that's you know that's a straightforward example and I would say that I think when we say AI uh, I know at least my brain immediately goes to perhaps the most complex and sophisticated software and sort of black hole that I feel like, oh, we'll never understand. 
But what, you know, EEOC is finding in some charges is that, you know, algorithms like anything else can very straightforwardly be used improperly. Carol Miaskoff is legal counsel with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. We'll post this interview as well as a link to the document itself at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And of course, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, now that the debt ceiling debate has been settled, it's back to business as usual for contractors, right? But first, one federal research entity celebrates its 75th anniversary. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The Federal Research Division, an office within the Library of Congress, is celebrating its 75th year in operation. During that time, it's provided much-needed, nonpartisan, custom-tailored research to federal agencies and others involved in governmental operations. To learn more about the FRC and its history, I spoke to the chief of the division, Annie Roram. It is a little-known part of the library, although uh, we'd love to be known across the federal government. So the Federal Research Division, or FRD, is a unit within the Library of Congress that produces highly world-renowned and nonpartisan research and analysis to support evidence-based decision-making among a select group of clients. So specifically, FRD provides custom research to federal agencies, the District of Columbia government, and authorized federal contractors. And it's Crucial to to mention that FRD operates on a cost recovery basis and takes almost no appropriated funds to sustain its operations. So our clients pay us to conduct research on their behalf. And we were originally known as the Air Research Unit. That was way back in 1948. And we were established to provide research support for what was then a new U.S. Air Force. We later became known as the Air Studies Division and later the Defense Research Division, uh, but assumed our current name, the Federal Research Division, in 1970. And that was when our mandate was expanded to include all of the federal government outside of Congress. So we sometimes call ourselves the Congressional Research Service, but for everybody else instead because we don't provide research for Congress and do provide it for all other parts of the federal government. And so can you lay out a little bit for me? I know you said federal agencies, but uh, it's my understanding that you also provide services to other entities. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about how those arrangements are conducted? Yes. So any organization that's within the District of Columbia or is, quote, an authorized federal contractor any of those groups that receive appropriations, either on a one hop, so either direct appropriations or on a two hop, so uh, are contracted to provide some type of service on behalf of an appropriated entity, can work with us through an interagency agreement to send those funds back to us at the library to provide research services for them. So it's all part of the same financial structure. It's an interagency agreement. And it's a little bit less common for us to do work for those types of groups. Our, the vast majority of our business is for the federal government. And that includes 
components within the Library of Congress as well. And what and I know that it's probably all over the place, but when you say research, uh, can you just give me a few examples of uh, the types of research that you all are doing for said federal agencies when they uh, request your help? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. It is all over the place. We're a group of generalists and we love when folks come to us with thorny questions or unusual requests. We can produce a lot of different types of things for federal agencies or our other clients. So when you hear research, you might think desk research or a written product. And it's true that we do a lot of that, a lot of literature reviews, a lot of organizational histories, a lot of things that require us to use the library's vast and amazing collection of resources to read and analyze and synthesize and write. But we also do other really interesting things like data visualization and data analysis. So we recently put together an interactive map on behalf of a a library component. And that map allows people to click around and look at the array of federal libraries across the United States and learn a little bit more about each of those libraries. We also conduct data analysis on behalf of the Department of Defense, where we go into USA spending data and do an analysis of contracts that go out to counties all across the country to determine which counties are receiving how much in Defense Department contracts. So we've got a lot of skilled folks on staff ranging from economists to librarians to evaluators to data scientists. And we can do research of all stripes across the board. I'll mention one more thing, which is that we're building our capacity to do operations and business research. So some folks will come to us and say, We're really interested in learning a little bit more about, for instance, how federal agencies that look like us make sure that they're executing their budget efficiently year over year. What types of tools are they using? What types of models do they have in place? And we will go out, benchmark those federal agencies, conduct interviews, uh, learn about the tools in place, and help agencies or library subcomponents learn about those business operations. So it's it's absolutely research and analysis, but it is a specific type in the form of operations research. We're speaking with Annie Roram, Chief of the Federal Research Division within the Library of Congress. And I know you talked about the there was a little bit of a name change from the early days, but 75 years of the Federal Research Division, has the role stayed the same or has there been an evolution, not just within the different kinds of research you all are doing? Has it mostly been the role that you all are filling now in helping federal agencies? Yes, I would say there are two major evolutions, but there's been a through line of research and analysis support. So the two major evolutions are, as you've alluded to, an expansion in our client base. So we were established to provide that research support for the U.S. Air Force. We later worked with the Defense Intelligence Agency. Then we provided services to the entire Department of Defense And then the mandate expanded again to include all of the federal government. And as I mentioned, we also support the District of Columbia and authorized federal contractors. But the other thing that has changed over time is what people are looking for. And that changes 
uh, year over year, really, Eric. I mean, we've got people now coming to us with questions about evaluation because of the Evidence Act. So there's a large push across the federal government now to really look at the data in terms of um, how policies and programs are performing in order to ensure that they're performing as planned, efficiently, and effectively. So while at a you know, time 50 years ago, we were mostly doing, like I said, desk research. We have really expanded our offerings to do a lot more on the data front. I should also mention, of course, that in 1948, there was no internet. <laughs> so the ways that we're conducting research and the types of products we can offer um, in this internet age are really quite different than they were in 1948. All right. And here's to 75 more years, right? <laughs> Indeed. And that's our goal here is to make sure that people know about us so that we can stay in business, stay providing those high quality services to the federal government for 75, 175 more years. And I should mention, Eric, we are hosting an event coming up on Tuesday, June 13th. I will be moderating a panel of five research users and researchers in different roles across the federal government, really talented, exciting folks. And we'll be having an hour-long conversation uh, about why it's really important to have good quality research to inform federal policy. So anyone who's interested in joining us virtually can find the link to RSVP to that 1030 June 13th event on our website, which is loc.gov slash FRD. Annie Roram is chief of the Federal Research Division. You can find this interview along with a link to more information about its upcoming event at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, now that the debt ceiling debate has been settled, it's back to business as usual for contractors, right? It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The debt ceiling debate has absorbed many in Washington over the past few weeks, as well as those whose business prospects are directly tied to federal spending. Now that a deal is done, how are they feeling about it? I spoke with federal contracting expert Larry Allen to find out. I think the good news is now that we have a debt ceiling agreement that the rest of the fiscal year for FY23 should be pretty strong. Congress has appropriated a lot of money, uh, perhaps a record number for acquisitions for this year. We'll have to wait and see what happens when the year ends. But overall, it should be a strong last quarter plus for government contractors. Agencies now have a clear path from here to the end of the year. There shouldn't be any more hiccups. Things may have slowed down a little bit while people dealt with what they thought might be a shutdown due to the debt ceiling. But now that that's over, I think we'll have the traditionally strong fourth quarter that we've had, particularly strong, consistent with the last two years. Which agencies are going to see less dollars, though? I mean, obviously, the GOP members got some of what they wanted, which means cuts to federal agencies. What are you hearing from your clients on that front? So I think the big thing we're going to see on that is civilian agencies going to be, uh, in some cases, they will have uh, less money to spend. Not so much the Department of Defense, at least not right now, 
But if you're looking at places that have unobligated COVID money, whether it's CMS or Department of Education that maybe was giving grants to state and local governments that have not obligated that money yet, those are areas where we're going to see money clawed back. So if you've got money that's been sitting in an account unused for a couple of years, maybe it was COVID money, maybe it was infrastructure money, that money, uh, if it's uh, not obligated, it's very vulnerable. That's the type of thing you could expect to see taken away. But in terms of defense expenditures and anything related to national security, that's going to remain there, remain strong. Things that are associated with cybersecurity. Having said that, though, there's a difference between cybersecurity and other IT wish list items, the further away you get from criticality, the more likely it is that you might see funds diminished for allegedly non-critical, non-major IT projects. And part of the deal also, they didn't want to call it this, but it seems as if we're returning to cross-the-board cuts, uh, a.k.a. sequestration. (laughs) Are you worried about any of that language going back into spending deals? Well, now we do have the S word back in the federal vernacular for sequestration. And basically what the budget agreement says is if Congress fails to pass all 12 appropriations bills for FY24 on time, on time being before midnight, September 30th, then there would be an automatic 1% across the board sequestration that would kick in. And nobody would want to see that. That would also affect the Department of Defense. I will say there's a lot of time between now and then for Congress to either pass the bills, which is unlikely given their previous track record of not getting appropriations bills done on time. But more likely, there's more of an opportunity to maybe backtrack on the sequestration automatic cut We've already heard some members in the Senate talk about carving out the Department of Defense from those automatic sequestrations. So there's a lot of time left before that would type of before that type of cut would actually take place. But it certainly is a specter uh, and it's a marker, I think, as much as anything to try to get appropriations done in a timely manner. And really, that would just benefit everybody. It benefits federal agencies. It benefits taxpayers because it puts in some surety to the budget process. And of course, it it benefits contractors as well. Yeah. And most of them obviously look quarter to quarter. But uh, is there worry about five years down the road having to do this whole thing again? (laughs) Oh, I think you definitely have to be concerned about coming up with another debt ceiling increase when we get to that point sometime after the next presidential election right now is the amount of time we think we've bought ourselves. Uh, We'll see if that comes to fruition. But I definitely think in terms of overall acquisition dollars, we've been riding a high for the last several years in the government market. Contractors and their government counterparts would do well to understand that we're not going to continually see year over year increases in discretionary spending, whether it's attributable to a debt ceiling increase, an appropriation, 
a sequestration, what have you. Look, I've been in this market for a long time. I've seen government acquisition dollars go up, but I've also seen them go down. We're kind of due right now for a downturn. So in the out years, really starting as soon as FY24, I would urge some caution in expecting things to continue as they have. There may be some belt tightening and some increased competitiveness. Got it. As far as the frequently asked questions that contractors have for their agency customers, one of the major ones, obviously, is the General Services Administration. You all recently did an analysis on what those FAQ Interact sites are, uh, how how well they're being kept up. Uh, What did you all find? The basic idea behind the GSA Interact sites, I think, is a good one, and that is to serve as a centralized way for different groups of contractors to stay in communication with specific programs at GSA. You have an Interact site for almost every federal acquisition service contract method, whether it's the schedules program, whether it's Alliant, whether it's what a Polaris or Oasis. And yet what I've found is if you're not on the schedules program Interact site, then your site isn't being updated very often. Uh, The GSA Schedules Interact site is updated about every 10 to 14 days, whereas Polaris has not been updated in well over a month, six or seven weeks. It's been a little bit over a month now for Oasis Plus. Both of these are procurements that are ongoing right now. Oasis Plus is just about to come out with a final RFP. And yet both of those programs, Polaris and Oasis Plus, were dealt either directly or indirectly setbacks in the Court of Federal Claims about six or seven weeks ago. GSA needs to communicate effectively, clearly, and quickly what they're going to do with those two programs and when that's going to happen. They might not have all of the answers now, But you've got an interact program to communicate with industry on what you can say, and there ought to be some capability to update it. Even a program like Alliant 3, where GSA has already said, don't expect an RFP out until FY24, I think an update for that program is worthwhile because it's going to have some of the pricing issues and some of the mentor-protege issues that... Oasis Plus and Polaris have. So all three of those sites, I think, need to be updated. That's Larry Allen from Allen Federal Business Partners. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com and wherever you get your podcasts when you subscribe to the Federal Drive. Policymakers have long debated whether agencies classify too much information. Now Congress is considering legislation to overhaul the government's classification policies. A report from the Nonproliferation Policy Education Center argues that overclassification is a threat to national security, and it offers recommendations on what can be done to fix it. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the executive director of the MPEC, Henry Sikolsky. Well, first I'll give you some examples where anyone with a high school education would say, that's not good. And then I'll generalize. What if I was to tell you that we had soldiers in Afghanistan who needed to get detailed maps of the front line of battle that were, you know, fighting with Afghanis and they couldn't get 
the maps from the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency quick enough. And when they finally did get the maps, which had and images that had all sorts of information, they couldn't share it because it was classified no foreign, no foreigners. And so it was useless, absolutely useless. And so they started to open their own wallets to buy commercial imagery that was unclassified. And they worked with that. What if I was to tell you that the Space Force recently oversees all of the most important, in my opinion, most highly leveraged military-related technological efforts that we have, but 1,700 of them are under special access program clearances, which means only a handful of people are cleared for each one of the programs, which is a prescription for not being able to manage these programs at all. And they're, they're our cutting edge. So, you, you know, these are just some examples. Uh, I mean, uh, finally, you know, information warfare or open source intelligence is becoming more and more important. We're seeing this in how we deal with the Russians and the war against Ukraine. Well, you know, to have open source intelligence, however, right now requires it to be validated by the intelligence community. And that process makes it almost impossible to get a lot of things out. That's just, you know, absurd on the face of it. I mean, we're the country that's open, not China or Russia. We should have an advantage in, in being doing open source intelligence uh, and trading in it and using it to leverage other people's behavior. One aspect of overclassification is the process in government through these classification guidebooks. Um, and that's one thing that your paper touched on. Can you talk a little bit about how these guidebooks are a major part of the problem? Well, there was one agency that was operating under 65 classification guidebooks. And they realized that nobody was going to read all those things, and nobody was. And what they were doing was trying to get to that entertaining end-of-day event by clearing their desk off by hitting overclassification buttons on everything. You say, well... No one's going to get, get me in trouble by overclassifying, and I don't have to read the guidebooks. The guidebooks are Greek, and they contradict and obey. In fact, right now, by some accounts, we, the government is operating under 2,100 of these guidebooks. Other people say maybe it's more like 4,000. I, I don't honestly know, but when you're talking thousands, you, you know, you're already in a place you don't want to be. Then there are 1,400 individuals who have original classification authority, which means that they can make judgments and that's it. And then what they do is there's thousands more that they, they delegate their authority to, which I, you know, I once had such authority. Uh, I don't remember, thankfully, classifying anything, but, but I, there were people pleading with me to do that, uh, which is interesting. Now, what happens with this many guidebooks is they don't get used and people resort to doing things that don't even follow the guidebooks. You've got to get those down. If you don't boil them down, no one will look at the guidebooks or use them. So that's bad. And they'll make mistakes, both overclassifying and, to be honest, underclassifying. But it gets worse. Given the bow wave of uh, things that have not been reviewed for, for lowering or eliminating classification, and we're talking about millions upon millions of documents, every year that just sit and fester and grow and don't get looked at 
there's no way you'll ever catch up or cope unless you do some increased amount of automation. Well, you can't automate if the guidance is contradictory or vague. So it's like a double double whammy uh, kind of penalty if you don't have fair consolidated guidance. We need to move in that direction. That agency with the 65 different guidebooks previously was, I believe, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which your report and others, I should mention, uh, they've really been held up as an example of how to at least take on this challenge of having one consolidated guidebook. How did they do that? And, and why could this serve as a model potentially for other parts of government? Well, if you talk to any grizzled, experienced American bureaucrat, uh, or for that matter, the, the, the chattering class that follows them, they will say, you know, there's no incentive to take risks to lower classification, eliminate classification. You can ruin your career. And therefore, all of the incentives are loaded in the direction of overclassifying uh, rather than, you know, doing anything else. Now, that is a powerful and I think largely correct view, but it goes too far. And when it does, it gets things dead wrong. Actually, many of the agencies and offices of the U.S. government are taking risks by overclassifying, and they need to be sensitized to this. Luckily, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency had that Afghan example rubbed in their face, and they realized very, very quickly on because of that and other things like it, that unless they could get the classification on the information that they were massaging and and working lowered, they wouldn't have any customers. Not only that, but most of the value added at NGA to the images that they get from the National Reconnaissance Offices and other places is due to private contractors who analyze the images. And you have to share information with them for them to be able to do their job properly and quickly. Not only that, but it wasn't just, you know, the Afghanis we couldn't share with. It was other military allies in NATO. So they kind of realized they were going to go out of business because people would just go to commercial imagery. It wasn't as good, it wasn't as informed, but at least it was something. And it wasn't subject to these restrictions. So they got focused. And it's very interesting how quickly an agency can get focused if they want to. They looked at the problem very quickly, came to the conclusion that one of the drivers of their problem was having too many vague, contradictory guidebooks to begin with, controlling their classification and declassification process. So what did they do? In five months, they figured out how to consolidate the 65 guidebooks they were operating under down to one. All of this has put the NGA in an advantaged position as it now moves into doing artificial intelligence projects. And it's going to be one of the lead agencies because it knows how to squeeze performance out of people they need to collaborate with and the customer by getting the classification right. That was Henry Sikolsky, executive director of the Nonproliferation Policy Education Center, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. You can find more on this story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.